Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Classes of Mail. My name is Alan Gigax, and today we're going to read from the JCAM again. We're starting where we left off at Article 21, and I don't know how far we're going to get through this because the next few modules, are, or the next few articles rather, are all pretty short, and so I guess it will just be a matter of how many I feel like reading. So you'll already know how many I'm going to read because you'll see the episode title, but I don't know how many yet. So let's find out. Only way to find out is to get started. Article 21 is about benefit plans, and here we go. 21.1, Section 1, Health Benefits. The method of determining the employer biweekly contributions to the cost of employee health insurance programs under the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program, FEHBP, will be as follows. A. The Office of Personnel Management shall calculate the subscription charges under the FEHBP that will be in effect the following January with respect to self-only enrollments and self- and family enrollments. B. The biweekly employer contribution for self-only, self-plus-one, and self- and family plans is adjusted to an amount equal to 73% in 2020 and 2021 and 72% in 2022 and 2023 of the weighted average biweekly premiums under the FEHBP as determined by the Office of Personnel Management. The adjustment begins on the effective date determined by the Office of Personnel Management in January 20, January 2021, and January 2022, and January 2023. C. The weight to be given to a particular subscription charge for each FEHB plan and option will be based on the number of enrollees in each such plan and option for whom contributions have been received from employers covered by the FEHBP as determined by the Office of Personnel Management. D. The amount necessary to pay for the total charge for enrollment after the employer's contribution is deducted shall be withheld from the pay of each enrolled employee. To the extent permitted by law, the employer shall permit employees covered by this agreement to make their premium contributions to the cost of each plan on a pre-tax basis, and shall extend eligibility to such employees for the U.S. Postal Service's flexible spending account plans for unreimbursed health care expenses and work-related dependent child care and elder care expenses as authorized under Section 125 of the Internal Revenue Code. E. The limitation upon the employer's contribution towards any individual employee shall be 76% in 2020 and 2021 and 75% in 2022 and 2023 of the subscription card or of the subscription charge under the FEHBP in 2020, 2021, 2022 and 2023. Health benefits contribution formula Article 21.1 specifies the percentage of career employee health benefit premium costs paid by the Postal Service. Letter carriers are covered by the Federal Employee Health Benefit Program, FEHBP, which enables each carrier to choose among many plans offering different levels and types of coverage. The premium amounts differ among different FEHBP health plan insurance, or different FEHBP health insurance plans, and also by the option chosen, self-only, self-plus-one, or family plan. So the actual amounts of employee and employer contributions vary from one plan option to another. The Postal Service's contributions for city letter carrier health benefits is calculated using the federal government's weighted average formula. The weighted average formula is based on the number of federal and postal employees who elect coverage in any given plan and option. The Office of Personnel Management, OPM, calculates the subscription charges that will be in effect the following January, 
January for both individual and family plans. The Postal Service contribution of the weighted average by weekly premiums as determined by OPM is shown in Article 21.1. The maximum that the Postal Service will pay towards any given plan of the subscription charge under the Federal Employee Health Benefit Program, FEHBP, is shown in Article 21.1. Regulations. More information about letter carriers' FEHBP coverage is contained in ELM Section 520. Employees of the U.S. Postal Service who are called to active duty may be eligible for full payment of FEHBP premiums by the Postal Service. And there's a citation here from the EL. City Carrier Assistant Employees. Health benefit entitlement for CCAs is addressed in Appendix B, 3, Other Provisions, Section F, Article 21 in the 2019 National Agreement. And here it is, Appendix B. Appendix B is the reprinting of Section 1 or I, Roman numeral 1, I think, of, I still don't know. Anyway, Section Roman numeral 1, let's say, of the 2013 DOS Award, the creation of a new non-career employee category, provisions of the DOS Award that were modified in the 2019 National Agreement are indicated in bold. Those provisions that are reflected in another part of the National Agreement or Joint Contract Administration Manual are not reprinted herein. Number three, other provisions. F, Article 21, health insurance. After an initial appointment for a 360-day term and upon reappointment to another 360-day term, any eligible non-career CCA employee who wants to pay health premiums to participate in the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program, FEHB, on a pre-tax basis will be required to make an election to do so in accordance with the applicable procedures. A previous appointment as a transitional employee will count toward qualifying for participation in FEHB in accordance with the Office of Personnel Management, OPM, regulations. The total cost of health insurance is the responsibility of the non-career CCA employee except as provided below. The Postal Service will make a bi-weekly contribution to the total premium for any CCA employee who wishes to participate in the USPS non-health Non-career health care plan, USPS plan, self-only option equal to the greater of A, $125, or B, the minimum required by the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act and applicable regulations. The Postal Service will make a bi-weekly contribution equal to 65% of the total premium for any CCA employee who wishes to participate in USPS non-career health care plan, USPS plan for either self plus one or family coverage during a CCA's initial year of CCA employment. After a CCA's first year of employment, the Postal Service will make a bi-weekly contribution equal to 75% of the total premium for either self plus one or family coverage. Any CCA wishing to make their health care contributions on a pre-tax basis will be required to make an election to do so in accordance with applicable procedures. All CCA employees will be eligible for the USPS plan within a reasonable period from the date of hire and entry into a pay status, consistent with the requirements established under the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Effective plan year 2022, the Postal Service will make a bi-weekly contribution equal to 75% of the total premium for any CCA employee who wishes to participate in the USPS plan for self, self plus one, or family coverage, regardless of year of employment. The Postal Service shall continue to provide the USPS plan with self-only, self plus one, and family coverage for the duration of this agreement. 
CCAs are immediately eligible to participate in the USPS Non-Career Healthcare Plan, USPS Plan, and receive employer contributions as referenced above. After an initial, uh, after initial appointment for a 360-day term and upon reappointment to another 360-day term, CCAs are also allowed to participate in the FEHBP. To qualify for the FEHBP, CCAs must first have completed one full year, 365 days, of current continuous employment, including breaks of five days or less, regardless of when the five-day break occurs. A previous appointment as a transitional employee will count toward qualifying for participation in the FEHBP in accordance with the Office of Personnel Management, OPM, regulations. Any eligible CCA who wants to pay health care premiums to participate in the FEHBP on a pre-tax basis will be required to make an election to do so in accordance with applicable procedures. The total cost of health insurance in the FEHBP is the responsibility of the non-career CCA. 21.2, Section 2, Life Insurance. The employer shall maintain the current life insurance program in effect during the term of this agreement. Fegley Coverage. Letter carriers are covered by the Federal Employees Group Life Insurance, Fegley, program. More information about Fegley Coverage is contained in ELM Section 530. Employees of the U.S. Postal Service who are called to active duty may be eligible for full payment of Fegley premiums by the Postal Service. And there's a citation from the EL in here. 21.3, Retirement. Section 3, Retirement. The provisions of Chapter 83 and 84 of Title V U.S. Code and any amendments thereto shall continue to apply to employees covered by this agreement. CSRS and FERS Retirement. Letter carriers are covered by federal retirement law guaranteeing them retirement annuities. Each carrier is covered by either the Civil Service Retirement System, CSRS, or by the newer Federal Employees Retirement System, FERS. More detailed retirement information is contained in ELM Sections 560 and 580. 21.4, Section 4, Injury Compensation. Employees covered by this agreement shall be covered by Subchapter 1, um, maybe that's subchapter I, Roman numeral I, I don't know, of chapter 81 of Title V and any amendments thereto relating to compensation for work injuries. The employer will promulgate appropriate regulations which comply with applicable regulations of the Office of Workers' Compensation Programs and any amendments thereto. Workers' Compensation. Letter carriers who sustain occupational injury or disease are entitled to workers' compensation benefits under the Federal Employee Compensation Act, FECA, FECA maybe, administered by the U.S. Department of Labor Office of Workers' Compensation Programs, OWCP. Sources of information concerning federal workers' compensation benefits are ELM Section 540, USPS Regulations Governing Workers' Compensation. USPS Handbook EL505, Injury Compensation. Title V, United States Code, Section 8101, the Federal Employees' Compensation Act. Title 20, Code of Federal Regulations, Subsection Chapter 1, Regulations of the Office of Workers' Compensation Programs. And Title V, Code of Federal Regulations, Part 353, Regulations concerning the restoration to duty of employees who sustain compensable injuries. Limited duty. 
Limited duty work is work provided for an employee who is temporarily or permanently incapable of performing his or her normal duties as a result of a compensable illness or injury. The term limited duty work was established by Title V CFR Part 353, the OPM regulation implementing 5 U.S.C. 8151B, that portion of the Federal Employees' Compensation Act, FECA, pertaining to the resumption of employment following compensable injury or illness. USPS procedures regarding limited duty are found in ELM Section 540, uh, the Office of Workers' Compensation Program, has the exclusive authority to adjudicate compensation claims and to determine the medical suitability of proposed limited duty work. So right in the middle of that sentence, I had to sneeze, and I was able to pause the recording, sneeze, pick it back up, and uh, I bet it was seamless. I'm I'm starting to get the hang of this stuff, sort of. Uh, Moving on. However, ELM section 564.14 provides for additional rules that must be observed when offering limited duty work. And here it is, 564.14, disability partially overcome. 564.142, obligation. When an employee has partially overcome the injury or disability, the USPS has the following obligation. A, current employees. When an employee has partially overcome a compensable disability, the Postal Service must make every effort toward assigning the employee to limited duty consistent with the employee's medically defined work limitation tolerance, C546.611. In assigning such limited duty, the Postal Service should minimize any adverse or disruptive impact on the employee. The following considerations must be made in effecting such limited duty assignments. 1. To the extent that there is adequate work available within the employee's work limitation tolerances, within the employee's craft, in the work facility to which the employee is regularly assigned, and during the work hours when the employer regularly works, that work constitutes the limited duty to which the employee is assigned. Two, if adequate duties are not available within the employee's work limitation tolerances in the craft and work facility to which the employee is regularly assigned, within the employee's regular hours of duty, Other work may be assigned within that facility. 3. If adequate work is not available at the facility within the employee's regular hours of duty, work outside the employee's employee's regular schedule may be assigned as limited duty. However, all reasonable efforts must be made to assign the employee to limited duty within the employee's craft and to keep the hours of limited duty as close as possible to the employee's regular schedule. 4. An employee may be assigned limited duty outside of the work facility to which the employee is normally assigned only if there is not adequate work available within the employee's work limitation tolerances at the employee's facility. In such instances, every effort must be made to assign the employee to work within the employee's craft within the employee's regular schedule as near as possible to the regular work facility to which the employee is normally assigned. ELM section 546.14 specifies the steps that must be taken in seeking limited duty work in order to ensure the assignments are minimally disruptive to the ill or injured employee. The step 4 settlement, blah, 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 specifically provides that the provisions of ELM section 546.141, currently ELM section 546.142, are enforceable through the grievance arbitration procedure. An employee could be offered a limited duty assignment that meets OWCP's requirements but fails to meet the requirements of the ELM. 
Section 546.142. Carriers refusing such disputed assignments could risk termination of compensation benefits. These situations are addressed in the Memorandum of Understanding, January 29, 1993, M01120 which allows a partially recovered employee to accept a limited-duty job offer, quote, under protest, end quote, and still pursue a grievance concerning the assignment. The memorandum provides that, one, by accepting a limited-duty assignment, an employee does not waive the opportunity to contest, to contest the propriety of that assignment through the grievance procedure, whether the assignment is within or out of his or her craft. Two, an employee whose craft designation is changed as a result of accepting a limited duty assignment and who protests the propriety of the assignment through the grievance procedure shall be represented during the processing of the grievance, including at arbitration, if necessary, by the union that re represents his or her original craft. For example, if a letter carrier craft employee is given a limited duty assignment in the clerk craft and grieves that assignment, the employee will be represented by the NALC. If a clerk craft employee is given a limited duty assignment in the letter carrier craft and grieves that assignment, the employee will be represented by the APWU. Limited duty in CCAs. CCAs who have an on-the-job illness or injury may only be assigned to work in other crafts if the assignment to another craft is consistent with the ELM Section 546 and relevant Department of Labor regulations. An exception to the prohibition on dual MSPB grievance filing occurs where a compensably injured employee, whether a veteran's preference employee or not, appeals to the MSPB a failure of the Postal Service to restore him or her to a limited or full duty in accordance with 5 U.S.C. 8151B and Title V CFR Part 353. In this circumstance, there is no bar to pursuing a grievance to arbitration and through MSPB simultaneously. 21.5, uh, Section 5, Health Benefit Brochures. When a new employee who is eligible for enrollment in the Federal Employees Health Benefit Program enters the Postal Service, the employee shall be furnished a copy of the Health Benefit Plan pro brochure of the union which represents the craft in which the employee is to be employed. Additional health insurance provisions regarding city carrier assistant employees are found in Appendix B, Section 3.F. The provisions of Article 21.5, health, health Benefit Brochures, apply when a CCA becomes a career employee, and thus ends Article 21. And next is Article 22, Bulletin Boards. By the way, it is not okay to have the sniffles while recording, and I apologize for that. I've gone and grabbed a tissue box while I deftly uh, pause the recording, and hopefully that will keep my sniffles under control. Uh, it bothers me too. All right, moving on. Uh, Article 22, Bulletin Boards. The employer shall furnish... Wow, this one doesn't even have a number, subnumbers, because it's just the one paragraph, and that's the whole article. All right. Article 22, Bulletin Boards. The employer shall furnish separate bulletin boards for the exclusive use of the union, subject to the conditions stated herein, if space is available. If, if sufficient space is not available, at least one will be provided for all unions. The union may place its literature racks in swing rooms if space is available. 
Only suitable notices and literature may be posted or placed in literature racks. There shall be no posting or placement of literature in literature racks except upon the authority of the official designated representatives of the Union. The preceding article, Article 22, shall apply to city carrier assistant employees. National Arbitrator Howard Gamser ruled in blah 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 that the Postal Service may not interfere with the posting of material on NALC bulletin boards unless management, quote, can prove that this material is unsuitable for posting because it has caused or will cause an adverse impact on the ability of postal authorities to direct the workforce and to manage its operations efficiently and productively, end quote. Arbitrator Gamser sustained an NALC grievance in which management unilaterally removed a list of non-members from a bulletin board because the Postal Service was unable to demonstrate, quote, that the notices did, in fact, cause sufficient disruption or dissension so as to interfere with the orderly conduct of business, or that a failure to remove such notice would inevitably lead to such a result, end quote. In the Step 4 decision, blah, 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 management sustained a grievance challenging the removal from a bulletin board of an NALC bulletin listing endorsements of political candidates. And thus ends Article 22. Next, we go to Article 23, Rights of Union Officials to Enter Postal Installations. This is also only one paragraph long. Upon reasonable notice to the employer, duly authorized representatives of the union shall be permitted to enter postal installations for the purpose of performing and engaging in official union duties and business related to the collective bargaining agreement. There shall be no interruption of the work of employees due to such visits and representatives shall adhere to the established security regulations. The preceding article, Article 23, shall apply to city carrier assistant employees. Article 23 establishes the right of NALC officials to enter postal installations for any purpose related to the collective bargaining uh, any purpose related to collective bargaining or labor relations. Step 4 settlements regarding this provision have established that the union needs to give management reasonable notice prior to entering a facility. A phone call to an appropriate an appropriate management official is sufficient and there's a citation. There should be no unreasonable delays in granting or requesting union official access to a postal facility. And there's a citation. And high mail volume on a particular day is not a legitimate reason to prevent union officials from entering a facility. And there's another citation, and that citation ends Article 23. All right, we're going to keep going to Article 24. Yeah, we're only 22 minutes in. Article 24 is employees on leave with regard to union business. 24.1, Section 1, Continuation of Benefits. Any employee on leave without pay to devote full or part-time service to the union shall be credited with step increases as if in a pay status. Retirement benefits will accrue on the basis of the employee's steps so attained, provided the employee makes contributions to the retirement fund in accordance with current procedure. Annual and sick leave will be earned in accordance with existing procedures based on hours worked. Section 2. Leave for Union Conventions. Fuller part-time employees will be granted annual leave or leave without pay at the election of the employee to attend national, state, and regional union conventions, assemblies. 
provided that a request for leave has been submitted by the employee to the installation head as soon as practicable, and provided that approval of such leave does not seriously adversely affect the service needs of the installation. B. If the requested leave falls within the choice vacation period, and if the request is submitted prior to the determination of the choice vacation period schedule, it will be granted prior to making commitments for vacations during the choice period and will be considered part of the total choice vacation plan for the installation unless agreed to the contrary at the local level. Where the specific delegates to the convention assembly have not yet been determined, upon the request of the union, the employer will make provision for leave for these delegates prior to making commitments for vacation. C. If the requested leave falls within the choice vacation period and the request is submitted after the determination of the choice vacation period schedule, the employer will make every reasonable effort to grant such request consistent with service needs. The preceding article, Article 24, shall apply to city carrier assistant employees. Types of leave for union business include 1. Leave for union employment, 2. Leave for union conventions, and 3. Leave for other union activities. Reason for leave, NALC employment. Article 24.1 addresses leave from postal employment taken because of a full-time or part-time job at the NALC, typically with the local union or the national union. Article 24.1 guarantees that such NALC employees on leave from postal employment continue to accrue retirement credit, so long as payment is made, and earn credit towards step increases. As a general rule, a letter carrier who takes long-term leave without pay, LWAP, from postal employment does not continue to accrue retirement benefits or time toward periodic step increases. Reason for Leave NALC Conventions Article 24.2.A provides for a union member's right to annual leave or leave without pay, LWAP, at the employee's election to attend a national, state, or regional NALC convention. This is an exception to the general rule that the granting of LWAP is at the discretion of management, ELM Section 514. Once a carrier gives management appropriate notice of the need for leave, management should grant it unless the leave would, quote, seriously adversely affect the service needs of the installation, end quote. Article 24.2.B establishes three rules. First, it provides that employees requesting leave for union conventions during the choice vacation period will receive priority over other carriers, even those with greater seniority. Second, unless the local memorandum provides otherwise, such leave for conventions will be counted towards the quota of employees that must be given leave during that period. Third, the union may reserve a specified number of slots during the choice vacation period for convention purposes, even if the names of delegates are not yet known. Under Article 24.2.C, if an employee requests convention leave after the choice vacation period selection process is done, management must follow the usual rule, Article 10.4.D, which provides that, quote, all advanced commitments for granting annual leave must be honored except in serious emergency situations, end quote. So although management cannot cancel another employee's leave to honor the convention leave request, this section requires management to, quote, make every reasonable effort to grant such request, end quote. Reason for leave, other union activities. Requests for leave to attend other sorts of NALC activities are handled under the usual leave rules, Articles 10 and 30. Article 30, Local Implementation. 
Article 30.B lists the following two items for local implementation which involve leave for, for union activities. Article 30.B.8, whether jury duty and attendance at national or state conventions shall be charged to the choice vacation period. Under Article 30.B.8, a branch may negotiate language to alter the effect of Article 24.2.B above, under which leave for union conventions during the choice vacation period is counted toward the quota of employees that must be given leave during the period. Article 30.B.20, the determination as to whether annual leave to attend union activities requested prior to determination of the choice vacation schedule is to be part of the total choice vacation plan. Union activities in Article 30.B.20 differ from the national and state conventions, addressed by Article 30.B.8. Union activities may include a wide variety of union programs other than conventions, for example, training seminars. And thus ends Article 24. All right, so we're buttoning up on a half hour here. Let me see how long Article 20. You know what? 25 is really short. I'm going to add that one also. All right, here we go. Article 25, higher leave assignments. Wait, higher level assignments. Sorry, I had leave on the brain. Article 25 is higher level assignments, like carrier technicians. 25.1, Section 1, Definitions. Higher level work is defined as an assignment to a ranked higher level position, whether or not such position has been authorized at the installation. 25.2, Section 2, Higher Level Pay. An employee who is detailed to higher-level work shall be paid at the higher level for time actually spent on such job. An employee's higher-level rate shall be determined as if promoted to the position. An employee temporarily assigned or detailed to a lower-level position shall be paid at the employee's own rate. Section 3. Written Orders any employee detailed to higher-level work shall be given a written management order stating beginning and approximate termination and directing the employee to perform the duties of the higher-level position. Such written order shall be accepted as an authorization for the higher-level pay. The failure of management to give a written order is not grounds for denial of higher-level pay if the employee was otherwise directed to perform the duties. All higher-level assignments... Article 25.1, 25.2, and 25.3 apply to all details to higher-level work, whether or not such work is within a bargaining unit. 25.4, Section 4, Higher-Level Details. Detailing of employees to higher-level bargaining unit work in each craft shall be from those eligible, qualified, and available employees in each craft in the immediate work area in which the temporarily vacant higher-level position exists. However, for details of an anticipated, anticipated duration of one week, five working days within seven calendar days, or longer to those higher-level craft positions enumerated in the craft article of this agreement as being permanently filled on the basis of promotion of the senior qualified employee, the senior qualified eligible available employee in the immediate work area in which the temporarily vacant higher-level position exists shall be selected. Higher level bargaining unit work. Article 25.4 sets forth rules for filling temporarily vacant bargaining unit higher level positions. The rules depend upon the duration of the vacancy. For a vacancy of less than five working days, any employee may be selected from those who are senior, qualified, eligible, 
and available in the immediate work area in which the vacancy occurs. For a vacancy of five working days or more, the senior, qualified, eligible, and available volunteer in the immediate work area must be selected. All qualified letter carriers, including part-time flexibles and full-time regular letter carriers with bid positions, are eligible to apply for higher-level assignments under the provisions of this section. An employee properly selected for a higher-level assignment may voluntarily remain on the assignment as long as they remain eligible, qualified, and available in the immediate work area. However, unlike the provisions of Article 41.2.B, 3-5, through 5, Article 25.4 does not have a duration clause. Therefore, the assignment to higher level does not limit or supersede management's right to assign full-time unassigned regular employees under the provision of Article 41.1.8.7, which could possibly remove the employee from the immediate work area of the available position. Likewise, the assignment to higher level does not limit or supersede a carrier's right to bid, opt, or return to their bid positions. Carrier Technician Positions Temporarily vacant carrier technician positions are higher-level assignments, and thus are not subject to opting under the provisions of Article 41.2.B. Rather, temporarily vacant carrier technician positions must be filled in accordance with this section. And there's a citation. National Arbitrator Snow held in another citation that management may not assign different employees on an as-needed basis to carry a route on a carrier technician string when a vacancy of five or more days is involved. Instead, such vacancies must be filled according to Article 25. Note that most settlements and memorandums that referred to T6 positions also apply to carrier technician positions. Employees who are detailed to carrier technician positions under the provisions of Article 25.4 are entitled to higher level pay for all work performed for the duration of the detail as if promoted to the position. Letter carriers who fill temporarily vacant carrier technician positions assume the hours of the vacancy as provided by the pre-arbitration settlement blah 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 which states details of anticipated duration of one week five working days within seven calendar days or longer to temporarily vacant carrier technician T6 positions shall be filled per Article 25, 1981 National Agreement. When such temporary details involve a schedule change for the detailed employee, that employee will assume the hours of the vacancy without obligation to the employer for out-of-schedule overtime. The Step 4 Settlement blah 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 provides that the following management document known as the Brown Memo, and there's a citation, is a contractual commitment and remains in effect. The memorandum explains when a replacement employee is entitled to higher level pay when no employee is detailed under the provisions of Article 25.4. And here it is. When a carrier technician, T6, is absent for an extended period and another employee serves the series of five routes assigned to the absent T6, the replacement employee shall be considered as replacing the T6 and he shall be paid the T6 level of pay for the entire time he serves those routes, whether or not he performs all the duties of the T6. When a carrier technician's absence is of sufficiently brief duration so that his replacement does not serve the full series of routes assigned to the absent T6, the replacement employee is not entitled to the T6 level of pay. In addition, when a T6 employee is on extended absence, but different carriers serve the different routes assigned to the T6, those replacements are not entitled to the T6 level of pay. 
The foregoing should be implemented in a straightforward and equitable manner. Thus, for example, an employee who has carried an absentee six carrier's routes for four days should not be replaced by another employee on the fifth day merely in order to avoid paying the replacement higher level pay. City Carrier Assistance Article 25 does not apply to CCAs, and they are not eligible for higher level pay under this article. However, when a CCA hired as a CCA grade CC01 is assigned to a city carrier technician CC02 position, the CCA's PS Form 50 must be revised to reflect that he or she is assigned to a carrier technician position. This will require designation to the proper City Carrier Assistant Tech Occupational Code, either 2310-0047 or 2310-0048. 25.5, Section 5, Leave Pay. Leave pay for employees detailed to a higher level position will be administered in accordance with the following. Employees working short-term on a higher-level assignment or detail will be entitled to approved sick and annual paid leave at the higher-level rate for a period not to exceed three days. Short-term shall mean an employee has been on an assignment or detail to a higher level for a period of 29 consecutive workdays or less at the time the leave is taken, and such assignment or detail to the higher-level position is is resumed upon return to work. All short-term assignments or details will be automatically canceled if replacements are required for absent detailed employees. Long-term shall mean an employee has been on an assignment or detail to the higher-level position for a period of 30 consecutive workdays or longer at the time leave is taken, and such assignment or detail to the higher-level position is resumed upon return to work. Terminal leave payments resulting from death will be paid at the higher level for all employees who are assigned or detailed to higher level assignments on their last work day. Leave during higher level assignments. Article 25.5 provides that a carrier working higher level detail for less than 30 working days will receive sick or annual leave pay at the higher rate, but only for up to three days. If a replacement for the detailed employee is required, the detail is automatically canceled. An employee detailed to a carrier technician position is considered replaced when another employee is assigned to the vacancy for five working days within seven calendar days or longer under the provisions of Article 25.4. All right, that's going to do it for today. We will pick up next time with Article 26. And I think I have some interesting topics coming up for us for the regular educational stuff. So that'll all be coming up in our future. Until then, thanks for listening, guys. I'll catch you next time.